0: Evening. In this book, we plan to take the academic year to look at it. Tonight, we're in Ephesians chapter one, particularly looking at verse three and seven through ten. But we'll read all of three through ten this evening. God, the Father, has loved us, is what the Apostle Paul tells us. And Christianity involves enjoying. His love, knowing his love and responding in love to him who first loved us. Tonight we consider that again and we'll look as well in more detail at the son's work, God the son's work in our salvation and his love for us. But let me have you turn in Ephesians chapter 1 now to hear God's word beginning at verse 3. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade because the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, pray that you would teach us your word. We pray that you would show us Jesus in it, show us ourselves and our need of him by it, and that you would do good to us, eternal and everlasting good. For the glory of Christ and for our well-being, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians are designed to enjoy the blessings of God's love. This is a passage about the love of God the Father who planned our redemption and the love of God the Son who purchased our redemption and the love of God the Holy Spirit who applies to us that redemption. We're meant to enjoy it, but so often, if you're like me, if you're like most Christians, we don't enjoy it the way that we should. There's a wonderful story told about a 19th century character who had fallen on hard times. He'd run out of luck and money. He didn't have a job. He had just a few nickels to scrape together and get on a boat on the Ohio River to take it down to new orleans to look for new work he sold everything that he had to start over in life and he he bought his ticket and he got on the boat and he realized he he couldn't afford the meals and so he he with the last nickels he he grabbed uh, hold of some old cheese and crackers and he thought well i'll eat that on this multi-day journey down to new orleans and every day the passengers, many of them in fine clothing, others just moderately dressed, would go into the dining room three times a day. And he would quietly sort of sneak off into a private corner to eat his old cheese and crackers. And finally somebody saw him sneaking away and said to him, what are you doing? Are, are you coming in to eat? And he replied, well, no, I'm, I'm not. And, and they said, well, why are you not? And he said, well, look, I, I don't have any money. And, I, and I'm so embarrassed. there's all these fine people here dressed well, and I'm off in a corner eating old, crusty crackers and cheese, and, and it's all I've got. And the person said to him, "Well, would you look at your ticket? What do you mean? Why? Well just look at your ticket. Look at the bottom of it. At the bottom of it, it says, "All meals included." But here he is, like so many people, so many of us, right, living beneath what is ours. These are blessings, he says, for every Christian. He says you already have all these blessings, and usually we don't even know what they are let alone experience what they are. And listen, I get that. I understand that. It's kind of like this. I've been married a long time, but in an instant I can't tell you how long I've been married. I have to think it through. I have to think it through because I've been married a long time, but I've sort of forgotten about how long it's been, and I have to think through all the great moments of it. There are very few people, and there are some in this room, I'm sure, who can tell you exactly how long they've been married. More likely the women than the men. The men will do the math. But be easy on us. Be be patient with us. We're forgetful people. But it's not just remembering when we got married. We don't often live like we're married as married people. Whether it's husband or wife, we, we, we fall into the pattern of life is about me and I can do what I want. And I, I don't really have to consult. And I'm, I'm not in teamwork with anybody here. It's, it's life on my own like it always used to be. You, you understand what I'm saying? We can be married and forget what marriage is and what its blessings are. And we can forget to enjoy them and even know how to enjoy them. It's the same way in the Christian life. Jesus, it says, God the Father, it says, has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing. I realize he didn't say every physical blessing. Certainly not every blessing that you can think of physically. But he's blessed you with every blessing that he can think of spiritually. Paul is saying, I am already, and all Christians are already, the most blessed person who has ever lived because these things he says are ours not going to be ours they are already ours in Christ Jesus we need to learn them know them understand them believe them and learn to experience them and even then you can be an old christian and have only just tasted the very the appetizer of it so to speak But you're hungry for more as you understand them. That's why he's going to pray in part at the end of this, at verse 15. He's actually going to pray that we'll understand and know these things. Because it's not natural to us. We're forgetful of it. We don't understand them. Um, And so we want to see these blessings. We've already looked at how God the Father has blessed us. We saw that last week. We said some things that we won't go into at length tonight about these things, but I want to say, even before I say what they are by way of repetition, I want to say I'd I'd love to engage with you in a conversation about these things. There's a lot of disagreement and confusion in the Christian community about what Paul says when he says, You have been chosen, verse 4, in Christ before the foundation of the world. You have, verse 5, in love, He predestined you for adoption. He's reminding you of what the Father did when He loved you. He's reminding you, friends, that it's not just Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's the Father loved me, this I know. And here's what He did. Well, it, looks, it bears repeating for literally a third week in a row that we sometimes imagine that Jesus is really manipulating the Father into loving us instead of Jesus manifesting the love of the Father for us. We sometimes think of the cross as sort of the way that Jesus gets God to love us. twists his arm, convinces him he should, something like that, when the truth is... It's the father who loved us and gave his own son. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. It was because the father loved you that he said to his own beloved son, Jesus, go for them, go rescue them, win them, woo them, bring them safely home because it's as though the father said to Jesus, I would rather have these people, these two, (laughs) it's it's okay, I would rather have these people and lose you, Jesus, at the cross than have you, Jesus, eternally, uh, everlastingly in uninterrupted enjoyment, fellowship, and love and lose them. and lose them forever I would rather lose you Jesus and have all of them that's what the father says and so Jesus comes to redeem us and some of us I know are saying well look if I were God I wouldn't love me I'm, I'm such an unlovable character if you really knew me you wouldn't love me there are a lot of married couples who are still hiding from one another out of fear that if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. It's like that way in the Christian life too sometimes. We don't love ourselves. Why would God love me? And the Bible's answer to that is he loves you because he loves you. That's his message. He loves you because he loves you. He is a C. Of generosity, He is an ocean of blessing and there is a river of riches flowing to his people out of his abundant generosity because he loves. And so tonight we consider not just the father who loved us and chose us to make us his. And not just the father's love that adopted us and planned our adoption. Some of you who have adopted children know how many months of planning... How many lawyer documents? How many state government fees must be paid in order to legally adopt somebody? And the father, it says, didn't just spur of the moment adopt you. The father planned your adoption. But but we're looking now tonight at the son's role in salvation. So I want to say three things with the time that we have left about the role of the son. I want you to see redemption, release, and the revelation of our reunion. The reunion, in fact, of all things. Those three things. In the first place, you have tonight in this passage, redemption, he says. Verse 7, redemption through his blood. Redemption is the deliverance of somebody from enslavement or prison by the payment of a price. It's somebody paying a price to get you out of bondage or captivity what is it we've been freed from what is the bondage or enslavement we have experienced this passage doesn't spell it out for you you have to go to other places in the New Testament to see what bondage we have been freed from one passage to go to is Colossians or Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 Galatians 3 verse 13 Paul says this Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by being cursed for us it's not that the law is a curse you understand but the law pronounces a curse on anyone who breaks the law anybody who breaks the law has to suffer its penalty and the wages of sin is death and the bible is saying jesus got that in our place on our behalf this is pictured in the old testament On the most important day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, it's told to you in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 19, that there was one day a year when the great high priest took the blood of a slaughtered goat and he brought that blood into the temple, the holiest place in the temple, the Holy of Holies. And he presented that blood at the altar of God. And that blood said, God, judgment has come. Judgment has come upon this animal. It has died in the place of this whole nation. It has been a substitute in judgment. Was that animal adequate for that? No, of course not. It pointed forward to the only true adequate substitution, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ himself. But you understand, God was saying justice demands death, when God's law has been broken, his authority has been rebelled against, when there's been cosmic treason in his universe, and he will punish rebellion. And the Bible says Jesus has taken it away for us. And so we're redeemed from the curse of the law by Christ becoming a curse for us. We're also redeemed from slavery to sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 20 says, But you were slaves of sin, but now you have been set free from sin, you who were slaves of sin. There's, There's an interesting story about the building of the Tombs Prison in New York. The guy who was awarded the contract to build it committed a bunch of fraud and was found guilty and thrown into the very prison that he had built. And he said to the warden, I never dreamed when I built this place that I would one day be an inmate. And yet, friends, that's, that's the way it is for us. You and I have given ourselves over to sin, served sin, and, and if you know yourself at all, you will discover that you have become a slave to your desires, you become a slave to your own lusts. You're actually a prisoner of of the prison of your own making and bondage to sin. And what Jesus does is he rescues you. He frees you. And what does it take? What payment price needs to be made? Well, you can't pay it. You know that. A guy named Oscar Wilde, he, he has this character in his play called An Ideal Husband in which the the man's name is sir robert chiltern he's been involved in these seriously deep devious business dealings nobody has to this point discovered him out until this woman comes up alongside him trying to blackmail him and says to him even you are not rich enough sir robert to buy back your past no man is do you know that about yourself You cannot live a blameless future and purchase for you rescue from your past. You can't make up on it in the scales of God's justice. You can't do anything to rescue yourself from it. And who of us isn't ashamed of the stuff in our past? Who in this room isn't guilty of things that they regret And they would want to hide from everybody if they could hide them forever. But you don't have to pay a penny for this redemption. God is rich enough to pay the bill. Out of the riches of His grace, it says, He lavishes us with grace. And He redeems us at what cost? At the cost of His own beloved Son. Jesus pays the ransom price to the Father's justice. So that we could be freed from the curse of the law, rescued from our sins, so that there could be no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. This is good news, friends. And the result of it is the second thing. The result of it is release. That's his point here. In him we have redemption. What? The forgiveness of our trespasses. And the, and the word he uses here for forgiveness is the word To send away or to loose somebody of something. Uh, It means losing what binds us. It's again pictured in Leviticus chapter 16 on the day of atonement. The highest and holiest day of the Jewish calendar. Because on that day there there wasn't just one goat, there were two goats. One goat died, the second goat lived. And on that second living goat, the high priest placed his hands on the head of that goat. And confessed over that goat the sins of the people. You find it in Leviticus chapter 19 beginning of verse 20. Confessed over it the sins of the people. And as it were the sins of the people were transferred to that goat. And then that goat was led out into the wilderness. So far away it could never find its way back. It was a visual demonstration that God sends away our sins or as the psalmist put it as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us oh friends Melinda and I were getting our house ready to sell we're anxious to move here to Asylum Springs my real estate agent is in the room and we just made eye contact he's going to sell this house for me we have, we have doctored it up we have, we have made it Far more attractive than it was, you understand it. You know, there were eight people living in it for 10 years. It, we wore it out. When we when we bought it, the woman said to us that we were buying it from. She looked at the carpets, which were original to 1994, and she said, yeah, you know, there's, there's a spot over there, and there's a spot, you know, in the bedroom back in the corner, and you, you may want to put new carpets in. And, of course, my wife and I are cheapskates with four kids at that time, and we said, uh-huh, Okay. And we have lived in that house on those carpets ever since. We've stained them all the more. But they're 18 years old. They needed to go, and we hired in carpet one to come in and take out the old carpets and put in the new. I actually am such a cheapskate, I told the guy at the store, I'll pull the old carpets out. You just bring in the new. And by the end of it, I think he realized I'd probably screw that up and make it more work for his guys that he threw it in free. So these guys came in. They started cutting carpet. Now, now I don't know if you've ever seen this done. In a house with 18-year-old carpets in which eight people have lived. And who knows who before us. We'll blame it mostly on them. But, I mean, they pulled the carpet, and then they pulled the carpet pad. And then they got their brooms and they swept to the middle of each room a pile of dirt. Filth. Who knows what, you know, stuff. And thankfully they swept it up, they put it in a trash bag, they loaded it on the truck and they drove it away to the dump and it is gone forevermore. The filth And the yuck has been sent away and it's not coming back. I mean, new stuff is coming, you understand, but the old is gone. This is what Jesus has done for us, friends. He has taken our sins away and buried them in the garbage dump of Calvary upon which the cross stood. And he has buried them there in the ocean of God's forgiveness. And and listen, you need to know this. You need to be reminded of this. You need to tell yourself this again and again. Because if you are like me, you know how often you beat yourself up for your continuing sinfulness. And the Bible says to you, and you are forgiven. You who believe in Jesus, though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. This is vital for us to understand, friends, so we're not thrown into depression about ourselves, so we don't destroy ourselves with self-hatred about our continuing sins. But it's vital for us when we talk to others. Uh, John Stott, who is a, a dean, was, he's with the Lord now, he was a dean of evangelical Christianity in the last 50 years. He, he notes that, that Britain's one of their most well-known secular humanists and novelists, gave an interview on television. Her name is Marganita Lasky or something like that. Anyway, in a moment of candor on television, she said this, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me oh friends there's a world out there of people who need to know about the forgiveness of jesus but you'll never tell them if you don't know how good it is to be forgiven yourself christian you need to come back to this and you need to know this if you're going to treat others the way that god wants you to treat others and in the end of this book in ephesians 4 32 he's going to Come to well. What do we do with all this truth? What do we do with all this grace? And he says, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you." And that's hard to do. Corey Timbun tells the story of, of how hard it was for her to forgive wrongs done against her she'd been a forgiven person but she kept rehashing the incident and she couldn't sleep and so finally she cried out to god for help and then a lutheran pastor showed up to chat with her about her struggle and she explained it to him and confessed her failure to forgive in her sleepless nights and and he said to her look well up in the church tower nodding out the window there's a bell rung by the pulling of a rope But you know what, after the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging and first it dings and then it dongs and slower and slower until finally it stops. And I believe, he said to her, the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive, we take our hand off the rope. But if you have been tugging at your grievance for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old thoughts keep coming back for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowing down. And so it proved to be true in Corey Ten Boom's case, she says, there were a few more nights, a few more midnight reverberations, a couple of dings when the subject came up in conversations, but the force of it which she says was my willingness in the matter had gone out of them. They came less and less often and at the last stopped altogether. Do you understand her point? I'm not saying that the Lord has loved you this way with forgiveness. The Lord let the rope go. And that rope strangled his own son and he died that you could be loosed once and for all. And the Lord is not holding on to bitterness and grievance. But don't you find in your heart that it's hard to let go? With hearts like ours, we struggle. And what we need to do is we need to let the Lord's forgiveness of us begin to shape and begin to make us willing to be made willing to be shaped by the kind of forgiveness we have received as we relate to others. So that you can begin to let things go because the Lord has let you go. Now, there's one final point, and we'll make it extremely brief, and that is this. Not only do you have redemption in Jesus and, revela- and, and release in Jesus, but you have, you have revel- the revelation of reunion of all things in Jesus. He goes on to say in, in this complicated series of phrases in verses 9 through 10 that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. And what is that? It's a plan for the fullness of time. For what? To unite all things in Christ. See, what he's saying is this. There was a mystery, and now it's been unveiled. It's not a mystery, and it's not a puzzle that hasn't been solved. It's it's a secret that has been now revealed. And it's been revealed to you. And you, he says, have been given wisdom, wisdom and insight in order to understand this plan and purpose of God. And what is that purpose? It is God's plan in Jesus to reunite all things together in Him. The world has become like a fallen-down Jenga game. You ever play that game with the little boards? You slide one out and put it on top. Slide another one out and put it on top. It's a competition to see how high you can get. When that thing topples, it's a, it's destructive. It's a disaster. The world has become like that. We pulled one out and it all toppled over and everything got disintegrated. Everything fell apart. Things don't work like they should. But it was designed to be all held together. And when one part's missing, the rest of it doesn't function properly. When one part is broken, that brokenness spreads to all the other parts. I heard it put this way by a friend of mine named Les Newsom. He says, your lungs are a system designed to work as a system, Right? Your lungs are designed to work all together. But if you take yourself to Venus and you breathe in that sweet Venusian ammonia, your lungs will experience dysfunction, disintegration, and it will spread to all the parts of your body. This is what happened to us when Adam and Eve said no to the Father. This kind of uh, pervasive, Chaos, disorder entered the universe. And we all experienced that. Decay and death as well. And now Jesus has come, Paul says. And he has come to be raised from the dead. To be Lord over the universe. And to set all things right. To bring all things back together in him. The way that they were designed to be. In other words, Paul is saying that you... You are the object of that. You who believe in Jesus get to experience living life before the face of God as life was meant to be. Tasted fully in glory. But we have a foretaste of it. Even now as Jesus heals us. That's what he's saying. And this is so vital for us, friends, as Leslie goes on to say for two reasons. One... This is so vital for us American Christians because what is Christianity for us? For us individual Christians, Christianity is often just about me. It's about us. Jesus died to save me from my sins, we say, so that when I die, I can go to heaven. And that is such a microscopic view of what God is doing With this plan. He's not here just to fix you. Though he will. He is here to fix everything. There's nothing outside of the bounds of what God can fix in Jesus. And plans to do in Jesus. And so that means your future. Dear Christian who believes in Jesus. Your future is hopeful. That there's a purpose for your future. That everything Is meaningful. That history isn't random. It's not chance, opportunity. It's not ungoverned. It's not just piddling along to who knows where. But God has a plan. God has a plan to pull it all together in Jesus. And you, who believe in Jesus, are part of that plan. You've been redeemed for it, you've been released from your sins for it. And you have been given eyes to see that this is God's plan so that you can live in hope at the reunion of all things in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would drive home your word to our hearts in a way that only you can do.